0: I just love what Anne said, Anne Williams turned 78 today, and her summary is you're never too old to learn. And she said she's falling more in love with the Bible. I just wanted to say that's my goal. I want to be like Anne. I want to be old, loving God more, loving His Word more. And if you want to love God's Word more and you want to invest in that, I'd say you're making the best investment. And so if you want to love God's Word more and understand it better, come sign up. It'll be such good value for you and good for your life. And uh, that's Institute, but I'm going to be kicking off this brand new series. Welcome to everyone online and in the house. My name is James. I was the guy on the screen except shaved. I know there's a big transformation, um, but I'm the same guy. Um, And we are going to be kicking off (laughs) a brand new series. Uh, And so this series is called Truth Hurts, Truth in a Pluralistic World. Is it behind me? Yes, I have faith like mountains. That doesn't make sense. Um, And my mandate today, if you look at the graphic, it says my truth and my is scratched out. That's what my mission is today, is to help you scratch out my out of my truth. And week two, Dunks is gonna help us with what do we do when truth truly offends us and seems to come up against our desires. And this is an important two-week series and so pertinent to where we are as a society. But it's all about truth, and truth is the main theme. And so three headings for today. If you're taking notes, I advise it because you're going to struggle to kind of ingest all of this because we're going to go for the head today. We're going to be in for a lot of philosophy. We're going to engage with what society says. And so you might want to be taking notes because I almost promise you, you won't catch it all. And so the first heading is God's truth. Or my truth. Second heading, fake freedom or true freedom. And the third heading, the truth shall set you free. And so we're gonna be taking a look at that. But before we even get to God's truth or my truth, we have to understand objective truth and subjective truth. Objective truth is a statement that conforms to reality, it's outside of us and it conforms to that and it's indisputable regardless of how you feel. For instance, an objective truth claim. Yesterday, the Springboks beat Wales 30 points to 14. (laughs) That's what I anticipated. Praise the Lord Most High. (laughs) Truly He is Lord, the everlasting Father. All praise be to Him. That's an objective truth claim. A subjective truth claim, if you can just throw up the controversial church-dividing picture up behind me so that we can see. Right, so on the count of three, we're going to do thumbs. Thumbs up for pineapple on pizza. Thumbs down for pineapple doesn't belong on pizza. One, two, three, reveal. Okay, so there's some church discipline that has to be dealt out by the elders. Vaughn, did you see that? We're picking out our victims. (laughs) I'm just joking. This is a matter of personal preference, okay? You might like pineapple on pizza, and the person next to you might think it's an idea from the devil. But either way, it's a personal taste matter. This is a subjective truth claim. But what God, when God speaks about truth, he doesn't speak about it in terms of it being true for some people and not true for others depending on their taste. He makes objective truth claims. And let's take a look at some of them. Of God's truth. Let's see how he positions his truth. He says in Psalm 119, it says of God, the sum of your word is truth. It says in 2 Samuel, you are God and your words are true. It says in Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. It says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It says of God's truth, it's more to be desired than gold, even much refined gold, sweeter than honey, drippings of a honeycomb. Then Jesus rocks up in the scripture and he says, guess what, I am truth. And it says of him in Matthew 22, the disciples said, teacher, we know that you are true. For you teach We teach you, we know that you're true and what you teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Jesus prays in John 17, God sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. John 18, Jesus says, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I came into the world. Why did Jesus come? Did he come to show us the way? No, it says, I came to bear witness to the truth. Everyone, bless you, who is of the truth listens to my voice. And in John 8, Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Truth is a big deal to God and a big deal in the Bible. And this is the summary of it. I just thought I'd summarize all God's words sum together equal truth every word is true. Every word stays true. God's words are perfect. They even revive the soul. God's words are right. They make your heart glad. God's words are of more value than anything. Jesus says he's the truth. Jesus's teachings are true. Jesus's word has a way to cleanse us. His life testifies to the truth and the truth of Jesus shall set you free. This is truth as God puts it. Now instead, stark contrast to God's truth, we have a completely different movement in our day, which is called my truth. People saying, I'm just living my truth, and you are living your truth. And so this goes up against this objective truth that is true for all people at all times in every culture, and says, no, no, truth is something that I define within my own self, and I project it as true. Tim Keller, he makes this this comment on it. He says, the only heroic narrative we've got left in our culture is the individual looking inside, seeing who they want to be, and asserting that over and above everyone else in society. I hope that one of the things that we recognize is that if you can define truth on your own terms, you are incorrectable. Because truth is something that you alone have a monopoly of. You don't have to conform to any other truth. You define truth. So you can never be wrong. So Urban Dictionary, how many of you have heard of Urban Dictionary? Okay, a few dodgy people. (laughs) Right, so Urban Dictionary is not a real dictionary. It's not like the boys in Oxford or the girls. Uh, This is about people that have made a dictionary that's actually for laughs and giggles. It's a dictionary by the people for the people. It's like a Wikipedia of dictionaries where we can all add in our own opinion and our own definitions. But I find hilariously good and true what they said about my truth in the Urban Dictionary. They said this about my truth. This is a convenient phrase for avoiding arguments because people can contradict your opinion but not your truth. So if you take this for a spin in marriage, like in the Nell household, if Laura tells me, Why haven't you washed the dishes? And I say, I have washed the dishes. And she says, I'm literally looking at the dishes, and they are piled up to the sky, and they are moldy, and I can smell them from here. You have not washed the dishes. And if I was to respond, well, that's your truth. I'm living my truth. We would see what kind of true thing would come out in that marriage. It would be very interesting. Now, I make fun of this, uh, because it's a silly example, but I want you to know that living your truth leads to very dark, dangerous places, and society is headed for a train wreck. Long before, people coined the phrase, my truth. It was called relativism. And so we're gonna look at R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, how he defined it, and hopefully you can track just replacing the word, my truth, with relativism. In relativism or my truth, there are particulars, but there's no universals. There are relatives, but there's no absolutes. This means that we can have values, but no value, capital V. Truths, but no capital truth. Purposes, but no capital P, purpose. That is, we have fixed no fixed standards by which we can measure or judge values, truth, purpose, or beauty. Once we embrace relativism or my truth, it says this, We live in a world of ultimate chaos. Why would the world descend into chaos if everyone adopted the view, I'm living my truth, you living your truth? Well, I'm hoping that this is going to help you as I take six knockout blows, hopefully, of relativism and we critique this thing and we knock it dead. The first thing, and I think R.C. Sproul had this in mind is that if you believe in in relativism or you believe in the my truth philosophy, there are no absolute moral statements that can actually be made. Why? Because everyone's living their own truth. So this means that if you believe in relativism, you can't say men and women should be treated equally. Why? Because that's an absolute statement that transcends all culture times and should be imposed. But if people live their own truth, who are you to say? That men and women should be treated equally? Who are you to say people shouldn't be racist? Who are you to say people should care for the planet? Who are you to say people shouldn't rape and murder? Those people are also living their truth. Or should we, or are we gonna live in a hypocritical society where you say, don't judge me, I'm living my truth, but as for that person living their truth, they can't live their truth? So do you see how RC Sprawl is painting the picture for us and he's saying, we are descending into chaos? Secondly, we have this, that relativism is actually arrogant. It appears very humble to say, Jack, he's a Christian. Vaughan is a Muslim. In this scenario, let's just imagine, okay, Vaughan's a Muslim for the sake of this. Okay, Christianity is true for you. Islam is true for you. Seems humble, right? It's nice and inclusive, except it is probably the most disrespectful to these two religious views that you could possibly be. It doesn't take seriously Islam, and it doesn't take seriously Christianity, it only takes seriously not wanting to choose a side because it doesn't believe in truth. It is the most arrogant thing that you could do. The humblest thing to be would just say, you think one thing, you think another thing, and let's respectfully disagree. Relativism is arrogance. The third thing is that relativism doesn't actually work in the real world, okay? If you say the earth is round, that's the statement. Is that statement true for one culture and then false in another culture? Surely we understand that the, if the earth is round, it's round for all people. This is a statement of fact. In the real world, if you get news and you go to the doctor and that he says you have cancer, would you say to him, that's your truth? That's not my truth. Now, maybe we wouldn't. But that I would say to you, if you're a relativist and you believe in my truth and you don't believe that and you don't do that with the doctor, then you're not a consistent relativist. You're a relativist when it suits you to avoid truth and you're not a relativist when truth comes to serve you. So you're a hypocrite. Now, this is a severe attack that I am leveraging against this because it's severely damaging to our society. And it doesn't matter how many people tell you to live your truth and put it on Instagram, whether it's right, if it's wrong, it's wrong. G.K. Chesterton, great author, he said, right is right, even if nobody does it. Wrong is wrong, even if everybody's wrong about it. Don't be hung up on what's popular. Stick to, is this true? Okay, the fourth thing about relativism, and this is the most severe criticism I have, that relativism makes you your own god. Because in relativism, you're saying, I live my truth. So who is on the throne in that scenario? My desires must be met. I must live my truth. Ain't nobody going to tell me how to live my truth. So you must be affirmed, you must be comforted, you must be reinforced in relativism or living my truth philosophy. And so I hope you see that you are God. And if you are God in that scenario, I would ask you, how are you qualified since you're not all-knowing, all-powerful, or all-wise? to actually make those judgments. In fact, the Bible makes an extremely different summary of how we're supposed to deal with our heart desires. The Bible summary is our heart desires are not to be trusted. In my truth, my heart's desires are trumped above everything. But God says your heart is not to be trusted. In fact, he says in Proverbs 3 that trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean in, all your, under, in uh, your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. We see how relativism looks inward, and God says, Don't do that. Put your trust in your heart in the Lord. In fact, uh, the, the mantra of our age is I trust my truth with all of my heart. I will lean in my own understanding, and in everything I do, I will live out my truth. A literal opposite mantra of what the Bible has to say. So the Bible actually has the summary to say, did you know that your heart is not reliable at all? Jeremiah chapter 19 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? So out of all the deceptive things that you can engage with in this world, the worst thing that you can put as the standard of your decisions is your heart, according to the Bible. So I hope the silence here is because you, like me, are feeling challenged by the fact that my heart is really poor at making decisions in the Bible's worldview. In fact, it's the most sick above all things. So the application for me would be, I hope that if you're a part of this church or another, uh, whatever books you read, whatever sermons you listen to, that they have a strong dose of truth that will actually make your heart feel uncomfortable because the heart is deceitful above all things. And if you weigh your heart desires up against the truth of God's word and you feel uncomfortable with it, it ain't the Bible that's got to change. It's our heart that is being shown up for the deceitful thing that it is. And so the biblical worldview is very far. From this. So be careful of relativism, it'll tell you you your own God. Nobody must tell you any otherwise. And the fifth thing to criticize with relativism is that relativism is actually a contradiction of its own self. How so? Because in relativism, which believes everything is relative, there's no absolute truth, it makes the statement there is no absolute truth. But what just what, what just happened? I made a statement that was absolute about truth. Okay? So it's kind of daft to say there is no absolute truth, and in so doing contradict my own point. It's the same thing as me standing up in a room as a James and saying nobody should make any laws. If that's the case, you shouldn't listen to me. It's the same thing as saying all sentences are false, but that is a sentence that was just formulated. So we see that relativism falls on its face even when it is articulated, that there's no way to avoid absolute truth claims because in the attempt to make one, to avoid one, you've actually made one and contradicted yourself. It's kind of daft. So my truth is kind of daft. And I, if you believe in that, I'm sorry if you're offended, but I just want you to know it doesn't actually make logical sense. Now, some of you say, James, you're being too binary. Don't you know the world is now on luck? Like, everything's on a sliding scale and all things are graded. No, some things are still black and white. Some things are still logical and illogical, and relativism or my truth is illogical. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. Now, I want to go to why this actually got so popular. How is it that we got to a place in society where we've embraced something that has such poor credentials? Just to remind you of the credentials, let me go back in my notes. What, what is my critique here? Firstly, Relativism actually takes you into a world where there are no moral actions or obligations you can hold people to. Secondly, relativism's arrogant. Thirdly, relativism doesn't actually work in real life. Fourthly, relativism makes you into your own God, and fifthly, relativism is actually a self-contradiction. So if that's the track record, how is it that it's become popular? And I will... Position to you that my belief is that it came from philosophers in the 1940s and 50s called postmodernists, and their views have become increasingly popular from then to now and postmodernists had an issue with absolute truth and their issue as they as they saw it was that absolute truth is an enemy of personal freedom that your freedom personally is compromised if someone can make an absolute truth claim because then they hold power over you and you have to submit to it they also had a skepticism that people had a track record of using absolute truth to abuse and oppress other people that major groups that that had an absolute truth actually squashed minorities, lesser voices, and that therefore as well, uh, that absolute truth is the enemy of personal freedom. And on the third layer, they believe that even if you have an absolute truth for yourself, that you yourself are not free because somebody else imposed that upon you and you didn't arrive at it yourself. Does that make sense? Sort of. Let's go again. The claim from a lot of these guys, was that when you wield an absolute truth, you possess power to be able to say, I have the truth, so you've got to listen to me. And in the process of that, they have exploited and abused lesser voices and minorities. The great philosopher that was in this camp, Foucault, he said this, truth is a thing of this world. It's produced only by virtue of multiple forms of constraint, and it induces regular effects of power. In his sense, he says, all truth claims are power plays, and people are using truth as a way to gain power. Not, And that, therefore, is an enemy of freedom. I'm just taking you back down memory lane, explaining how it is. That this became popular because our society holds nothing higher than being personally free and so this is the claim that would take root so therefore obviously in response to this my first thing would be Foucault you just did the contradiction thing again you said all truth claims are power plays so your truth claim is also a power play and according to your advice I shouldn't listen to it okay so you get that this must be the biggest power play of all. So it's a self-contradiction still. But let's move past the self-contradiction of relativism and let's ask the question, does truth oppress people? Do absolute truth claims being stated actually lead people to less and less freedom? I would like to say that it doesn't necessarily do that. In the highly irregular, unlikely scenario that my wife and I were to go to the Kruger National Park, for whatever reason, we're going on Wednesday, so (laughs) we were there last month. Uh, If we were to go, and I was to be bitten by a snake, this is a silly example, but there we go, and we're off to the doctor, Laura's driving me, I'm deteriorating, looks like my health is going downhill, and we were to arrive at the doctor, the doctor needs to know what kind of anti-venom to apply, because there's many different types of snakes, and, and cytotoxic, neurotoxic venom, all that stuff, and I'm going downhill, but Laura was to produce the truth by photo evidence saying, I know for a fact what the snake is that bit James, and that information would lead the doctor to apply the right antivenom, that situation would actually result in my liberation from a truth, not in my oppression from a truth, In fact, most scenarios in the world, actually truth leads to liberation of people. I think of uh, investigative journalism done, documentaries that expose pedophilia rings, other sexual exploitations, setting free many people caught in abusive rings. Often in our society, truth has the effect that it actually sets people free rather than actually restrains them. And that when truth is used to actually oppress people, it's usually an abuse of truth. And not the fact that truth was said, but the fact that truth was misused. And so Foucault kind of is a bit not nuanced enough about the relationship between truth and freedom. And hopefully we see that the Bible's claim is that the truth, you shouldn't run from truth to be free. You actually need to run to truth to be free. In fact, the relationship is you have to be in truth to be free. And the definition of this world is very different. The definition of freedom in this world is not being in touch with truth. The definition of freedom in this world is having no limits, no constraints. I can be who I want, do what I want. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. And that's the world's definition of freedom. So I want to ask the question, what is the Bible's definition of freedom? Right? So we're going to take a look. Fake freedom versus true freedom. Fake freedom, the world's definition of freedom, you can do what you want. No limits, no constraints. The Bible's definition of freedom, a little bit different. C.S. Lewis, the great writer uh, and philosopher, he said, he gave this analogy. If there was a fish and the fish wanted to break free from the constraints of this water, that all of his forefathers, I don't know if that's a, a term that fish Will abide by the forefathers of his fishly nature. They were all constrained by the same pattern in the river, generation after generation. But he's going to break free from all of this monotonous living and he's going to launch himself out of the river onto that grass that he's been looking at through the, the river all of his life. And he launches himself there and he finds himself on the grass. Would we now say, because he's broken free of all constraints, that that fish is free? No, because that fish is going to die. He has gills. He can't breathe. Is it a he? I don't know. He, she, or it can't breathe. The point that C.S. Lewis is getting towards is freedom is not actually a lack of constraint, because it's really good for the fish to be constrained to the water. The definition of freedom is being able to do what God designed you to do. The fish was made for water. It's most free in the water. When it's in the water, the water runs through its body and it's capable of living its life. Then it's free. So the world's definition is sorely lacking about freedom being lack of constraints. Constraints must be there. But true freedom is conforming to that which God made us to be. So we kind of get the fact that the fish was made for water. But what about us? What were we designed for? Because if we can't do what we were designed for, we're not free. And if we can do what we're designed for by God, then we are free. But according to the Bible, freedom lies in our purpose. And our purpose is actually to love God and enjoy Him. That is the reason why we have been made. We were made in His image for His glory. We were made for relationship with Him. We were made to enjoy Him. And actually, that is not how we choose to live our life most of the time. We choose instead another path. We choose to live for our own selves, live our own truth. And what we find in that is that we actually are not free at all. But thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ whilst we were there writhing on the dry ground and we thought we had done such a good job as a fish launching to liberate ourselves, while we were gasping for air, Jesus Christ himself came to us in our mess and liberated us from death, a thing that we get handed over to because of who we are. To be a true human being the way God made you to be, you need Jesus Christ the one true human being as God made us to be before this fall. But we've been marred by the fall, but Jesus Christ lives out the one life of what it look, lives, looks like to be truly human. Does that make sense? If Jesus lives out the mandate of what God intended, then surely Jesus is the standard of what a life looks like to be truly human. What was Jesus' life marked by? Serving. Loving. Loving. Serving the Father, loving people. We see that if we're not under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we are going to be divorced from the very purpose of our life. It says this, it's a paradox in Mark 8 whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. If you insist on holding on to yourself, living for yourself, just being true to yourself, and refuse to let go, and give yourself away, you're going to lose yourself. And you will never truly be who God made you to be. You will never be free. But here's the paradox. If you give away your life for the lordship of Jesus to serve him, it is in that place that you become truly who God made you to be. And in that losing of your own life and giving it away, you find your life. The great paradox that is so much more nuanced and fulfilling and true than what the world sells us, which is freedom is doing whatever we want. John Stott summarizes it like this. Let me read it slowly. True freedom is freedom to be my true self, as God made me and meant me to be. And God made me for loving, but loving is giving. It's self-giving. Therefore, in order to be myself, I have to deny myself and I have to give myself. In order to be free, I have to serve. In order to live, I have to die to my own self-centeredness. In order to find myself, I have to lose myself in loving. It is only sacrificial service, it's only in that, the giving of the self in love to God and others, which is perfect freedom. And so I want you guys to know that freedom is only found in that truth of giving yourself to the lordship of Jesus. And when you do that, at that moment of abandonment, you will find yourself free for the very first time. And that leads me to heading number three, that the truth shall set you free. The relationship between freedom and truth is not what Foucault said, that you have to run away from truth in order to get freedom. The Bible's position is you have to run to truth in order to be free. But this truth is not just a theoretical truth like the philosophers. This truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. It says in John chapter one, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That the truth actually put on skin, Became someone who could be touched, hugged, known. And that word that's translated as word is logos. That Jesus is the logic or the reason. Now, the philosophers of Greece, they said, what is our reason for being? Is this our reason? Is that our reason? And they would debate with one another. While John comes out and says, let me tell you the reason for your existence. It is the word. Jesus is your reason. He is the one that you were made for. When you don't know him, you're a fish out of water. When you know him, you know who you are because you made in his image. You need to be reconciled to who you're really made to be. He is the word and he is the truth. We understand that when we live for ourselves, we've just established earlier that we're not free. In fact, we are slaves. That's the Bible's position. Living your truth for yourself leaves you a slave. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, who everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Slavery is not freedom. That is what comes from living for ourselves. But thank God for Romans chapter 6 that says, Don't you know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one that you obey? Either of sin, that's option one, that leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. If you, and then it goes on to say in verse 18, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now, this doesn't sound like good news initially. It says, I've been saved from slavery for slavery. But in fact, here's the paradox, that there is a type of master that will enslave you and leave to death, which is yourself, and you living for yourself leaves you like a fish out of water, never satisfied, fulfilled, and dying. But there's another master who is not a cruel master. He's a liberating master. His name is Jesus, and when you give your life to him and you choose to serve him with your life, he is your master, but that is the most liberating place to be. That's like the constraints of the fish being kept to the water. When you serve Jesus, you are set free, being a slave to righteousness. What a wonderful truth. So we come back around to the fact that Jesus said that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He doesn't say he's an option, he doesn't say for you and not for others, he says I'm the one who is the life and I'm the truth and he, when he says these things, we have to wonder, is this another one of these religious claims where Jesus is going to use this truth claim to exploit lesser voices and oppress minorities and actually just exert himself over others? Well, what we see with Jesus is that his ministry is far from that. He says, by the way, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? The poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to who? The captives. Re- recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has a ministry of uplifting women. Jesus has a ministry of actually touching the unclean, welcoming the outcast, forgiving the sinner. The very things, the minorities and lesser voices that postmodernists wish that they could champion. The thing that they were most concerned about is found in Fulfilled in Jesus. If only I could speak to Foucault now and bring him back from the dead and say, Bro, what you really wanted was Jesus. You wanted to champion these lesser voices. Jesus is the one who has a ministry to stand up for them, but he doesn't just stand up for them with a philosophy. He comes and he dies for them. And I am one of the them. I am one of the captives. You are one of the captives. We are all slaves. To our own desires. We are all those people that are desperately in need, and you and me have a savior who put on skin. He wasn't a theoretical truth that we can philosophize about. He was the one who slapped on skin, came down from heaven, and went to the cross. He didn't oppress people. He was oppressed by people. He didn't come to exert power. He emptied himself of his power, and he died on a cross, because that is the kind of truth that God is, not the kind of truth that we use to manipulate each other. When the truth put on skin, he gave up his life for the captives to set us free. Hallelujah. That's the kind of Jesus that we serve. So let us read and soak in this, that it says in Philippians chapter 2, this is the truth. It says Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing that he would hold on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men. How wonderful And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Wow. When the truth puts on skin, that is the most remarkable relenting of power that's imaginable. How humble is Jesus? What kind of a savior is this? A fish out of water. That's got nothing on Jesus out of heaven. And Jesus out of heaven, that's got nothing on Jesus becoming a human. And Jesus becoming a human is nothing compared to him becoming the lowest of all humans. A servant. And him becoming the lowest of all humans, even that is nothing compared to him dying. He's the infinite one. And him dying, that's nothing compared to him dying on a cross as criminal's death. He's the only one that's innocent, and yet he's the one that dies as a criminal. He's the only one who was made free and lived free, and he becomes nailed to a cross for you and for me. How crazy is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the landing point of the whole sermon is this, that he is the truth, and the truth will set you free. Why? Because Jesus is the one that sets us free, and he is the truth. And so we're going to read this, and then we're going to do this. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now what we're going to do is we're going to enjoy this freedom that God brought for us through his truth. Now, it's not his truth versus my truth. It's the truth. And we're going to take communion. We're going to contemplate how can the one who formed the stars in the sky come down and be slaughtered like a criminal for me to be free. We're going to think about this amazing gospel. And we're going to recommit ourselves again to saying, Lord, how magnificent you are. And we're going to enjoy this freedom that we have in Jesus.